This week's interview is a little bit different. It's a conversation with, between Persuadio and Porter, some exciting work that Porter's been doing, and a way that you can benefit. Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. Poker Zoo. Who is this? Thank you for tuning in once again to the Poker Zoo. You can find us at persuadio.nl. This episode, as well as all the other episodes, are listed there. A place to comment underneath. We love to hear your feedback. So be sure to leave us a comment there if you have something to say about an episode or a question. Persuadio or someone will be happy to answer. You can also find us... You can also find the episodes aggregated at thepokerzoo.com, Apple Podcasts, any of the Android podcast aggregators of your choosing. Uh, we're everywhere, almost. We are on Twitter at ZooPoker. Email thepokerzoo at gmail.com or persuadio at gmail.com. Uh, what else? Ah, we might put a Facebook page up here this week just for more exposure and to list any updates. Some say that he has the backspace and delete keys removed from his keyboards because he never makes mistakes, and that as a young child playing Simon says with his siblings, he actually told Simon what to do. We, however, just call him Persuadio. Well, welcome back once again to the Poker Zoo. Today I have my partner in poker strategy, Greg Porter. He is going to be talking not only about what he's been seeing in his own games, in the OOP game, but also, and most importantly, for those of you who are studying his upcoming webinar, which we'll be together hosting, entitled Scientific Poker Strategy. Uh, Greg, how's it going? Great. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the, the work that I've do, been doing in the, uh, this webinar, and yeah, happy to be here. Good, and we'll get all into that and as to why we're offering this. A lot of people have been you know, wondering how to get involved besides my coursework. And I'm really thrilled to offer this differing um, one-day program, which is, from, you know, from the drafts that I've seen is going to be very useful. And uh, equally important is you came up with a, a video. Uh, tell me about that because you analyzed a hand that we played that was a, a compelling one. Um, let's, let's jump right into that if we could. Sure. Uh, so this is a hand that we played in our PP poker uh, club game uh, that we play the two of us along with uh, friends and some students for practice. Essentially, we play micro stakes, uh, but we play really deep. So the minimum buy-in is 200 big blinds and then the max is, is 500. So there's varying stack depths. Uh, some of us play for really deep and some play just somewhat deep at 200 big blinds. So this hand happened towards the end of the session, late in the session. Uh, we're down to three-handed. I opened the big blinds. Or sorry, I opened the button for three big blinds. Uh, we're about 475 big blinds effective. Uh, the small blind folds, and you called from the big blinds. And the flop then was uh, king of spades, eight of hearts, four of diamonds. So there's uh, just six and a half big blinds in the pot. Uh, you check from the big blind. I bet 
uh, from the button, I bet two big blinds into the six and a half big blind pot and you call. And the turn is an interesting one. It's the five of diamonds. So uh, it's king of spades, eight of hearts, four of diamonds, five of diamonds. So it completes the six, seven gut shot, adds some two pairs and you check. And I bet four, I overbet. I bet 14 big blinds into the 10 and a half big blind pot. And you check raised to about 3x uh, to 41 big blinds. And then I, so I've got jack six of clubs. So I just have essentially a, a naked gut shot in terms of uh, equity. Um, but I block the, the straight and I block some bluff catchers. We'll get into that. I, I three bet to about two and a half times the size of your check raise. And then you went into the tank for quite a bit and then jammed the your full stack the like 470 big blinds uh and i of course uh fold so tight yeah you're saying tight what yeah very right yeah very tight nitty fold um yeah so really i i I thought the turn spot was very interesting and I, i spend the video um looking at some flop strategy uh, briefly and then taking using GTO plus and Flopzilla pro to examine the turn spot more thoroughly. Cool. And that's what made this video so good. Um, Not only there was a lot of accuracy in what you thought about um, what is a good play. You seem to understand what I was doing fairly well. Could you answer the obvious question that will be confusing to a lot of players? Like, why do you have jack six of clubs here? Well, so starting from just the open preflop, in any in any spot on the button where it's unopened and the action's on you, there's an incentive to open relatively wide. Um, you're going to be playing in position regardless of what happens post-flop. Uh, you have an incentive to steal the blinds. Um, or to, to lay them a price uh, and, and play a hand post-flop. So I, I don't think that it changes significantly uh, there, whether it's 100 big blinds or 500 big blinds. Um, you can probably slightly wider uh, open from the button when you're really deep because there's much more room to call three bets and play post-flop. So like I don't think that jack-six suited should really be a controversial open there. Um, then post flop, um, on, on this King eight, four rainbow board, I'm going to be able to bet very frequently. Um, just, it doesn't, I'm going to have an equity advantage and a top end advantage there. And that allows me to bet, uh, at a high frequency, uh, the, the equity advantage and, and the top end advantage is going to allow me to also have some larger flop, larger sized flop bets. If I choose to, uh, split my range into two sizings there uh, for a C-bet, which which I will. Um, yeah, then on the turn, when you polarize, I think uh, some some people have a misconception about overbetting construction where they think they're taking uh, all their high equity hands. They, they think of like flush draws and, and gut shots as, as their main bluffs. 
And uh, really, when you when you're overbetting, if you're only using the very high equity hands and nutted hands, there's not any incentive for your opponent to give you action um, unless they have uh, strong hands or hands that have a lot of equity to outdraw those hands. But in general, they're just going to overfold uh, when you construct like that. Um, so yeah, using hands like Jack six of clubs, other, uh, naked gut shots, other, uh, like small pairs using those lower equity hands as bluffs is going to, to give your opponent a reason to give you action. Right. Uh, well put. And for those of you who are very solver oriented as not everyone is, but you do see, um, I mean, I call them, I have a special name for them. I'm not going to use that because I know people get upset in poker when you use different vocabulary. It took me a long time to understand that. But um, when you do use some of these low equity hands, your game really expands and you do actually have the bluffs you talk about. And so one of the reasons I like this spot is we see good poker happening and, and you happen to have the bottom end and you happen to have a reasonable hand for it. Um, and, your, and your video is really great. Um, I hate to keep pinging you around from one thing to the next, but um, you're going to be running a seminar. You'll have to answer questions. Um, what is your focus in in this video? And we're going to connect it to what you're going to be doing uh, in your seminar. Right. So basically uh, looking at limited amounts of flops um, and then generalizing and then looking at more turns and, and trying to generalize as well. So, and then in addition to that, really uh, doing a bunch of different node locks uh, as alternatives for different strategies that you might face uh, either from the same opponent or from different opponents and then seeing how the solver will adjust its response to those uh, opponent strategies and looking for in, like, the incentives of different hands, which hands might be used as bluffs or value or, or as calls, um, depending on how your opponent's strategy changes. And then inferring incentives from that so that you can adapt when you're playing in an actual game, rather than trying to find some complicated mixed equilibrium strategy and then playing that as if you were in a vacuum Fair enough. Um, and this really connects to, I think, your some of your thoughts on efficient poker study. Like, we all know the guy, and there's now apparently an industry of people who take a hand and then go and check it against the solver results. D does this get you where you want to go? I don't think it does. I don't, I don't think it's an efficient means of study especially if you're just looking at the play of your hand that you had, as opposed to checking to see how you're playing the rest of your range. So uh, if I had maybe bottom two pair here, or if I, if I, ha I have Jack six of clubs and Jack six of clubs is an overbet and is sometimes a three bet in, in the solutions that I ran, depending on how I believe you're constructing your check raise range. So if I just looked at that in, in isolation and said, okay, well, I, I did that, so that's fine, and, and then left it at that, I'm not really going to get anything of that out of that when I go into later hands. And it also is not as though uh, that's the right play if I'm not constructing the rest of my range similarly. And then if, and if I don't do the work 
to generalize my look at how my strategy would work on different turn cards or on uh, slightly different flops or yeah, then then I'm not going to be able to to extract the the necessary information for how I want to construct my range when I'm actually playing. I'm just going to you know confirm, check that off the list, and and move on. That's that's not really going to be helpful. Um, right. Um, this sort of reminds me of, of two things. Um, one is a broader poker culture thing where we seem to be creating a bunch of armchair quarterbacks who don't really actually play very well. And number two, one thing I really like about this video is we get away from this tiresome obsession um, with flop <laughs> strategies and perfecting flop strategies. Could you comment on my two um, thoughts there? Right, yeah. So I think the the first one, it, you know, we if we see a hand, some high stakes online hand or some hand on stream, and then we go into a solver and we're making a bunch of assumptions that, you know, it's, it's fun to, to look at it and see how the solver plays and compare it to how the person actually played. But we're making a bunch of assumptions, a bunch of assumptions that we don't know, uh, are accurate. Um, we pre starting from preflop, um, then bet sizing, um, and then construction on, on later streets. If we don't know how that person is constructing their range, we might be able to say, well, it's this seems bad or I, I can't find a, a reason for it in the solver. But w without understanding uh, how the person is constructing and how they believe their opponent's going to respond, uh, either on the current street or on later streets, it's pretty hard to say whether something is good or bad. Everything is relational to, to how each, each player will uh, construct. Um, but really it's, I mean, because it's impossible to get that information, I guess it's, it's tempting and there isn't maybe a better way other than just not doing, not doing the analysis at all. Um, although I, I suppose the better way is, is to do something similar to what I've done and, and, and node lock a bunch of alternatives and see what might make that play correct or good rather than just saying this is not the play at equilibrium. Well, um, that sounds like work. I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's actually work. It's, it's not fun. Um, and, and I think, I think that's, that's how I'm going to interpret a lot of comments on YouTube and uh, other places <laughs> now, as I'm just going to hear, Oh, you don't want to actually look into this. Okay. Right, gotcha. Right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it would be more tedious for the viewer as well, but also I think it would be more useful if, if people wanted to do the work then as far as looking at flops i mean i think the whole notion of using flop subsets or they call them aggregation reports in po or pio um i think the whole notion of using them is is a mistake and mostly a waste of time if not just inefficient i'm, I'm sure you you can learn something from them but I think it's very inefficient and not particularly effective. Um, the, the flop subsets were designed to be used for pre-flop solves. So we're going to put two or more players in, in this spot pre-flop, and then we're going to run the solve over a bunch of boards, and we're going to find which hands are positive EV uh, to play post-flop, uh, 
in, in these ranges because the, the, the only way you can measure an EV of a hand is as part of the range. And then you want to see how that range functions over a different, different boards. But I think a lot of players are, are using, or a lot of students of the game are, are using these flop subsets to try to decide how they're going to construct post flop. And it's, not very effective for that. It wasn't designed for that. And I don't think it's effective for that. I think uh, a much, well, there are a bunch of much more effective methods, but um, in addition to just spending a lot of time on flops and you're, you're uh, well, so you're spending a lot of time on flops, which I think are a relatively is, is a relatively simple street. Uh, also a street where you're not going to be winning or losing uh, a lot of EV. Yeah, what, what I think is, is more effective is limiting the number of flops and then trying to generalize them to other flops and then spending more time on turns and rivers. Um, a, that's more reflective of real gameplay and B, you're not spending as much time on, on flops where there's not as much EV to be won or lost. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. That's good. And it is hard. I don't, it's, it's normal to stumble around on these things because they are actually hard, but we often retreat to the easier thing. And I loved this video. And, um, you know, in case the reader isn't or the listener isn't clear, Porter's offered um, a video analyzing a hand. It's going to be attached to this podcast. And in a way, it's a, a sort of segue into his coming webinar. And what I loved about it, it was difficult. Um, there's a lot of things going on on the turn and river. And um, we have to confront those, especially when we're deep, um, because these big pots will determine your, your win rate, really. Your, your future as a poker player really depends on getting um, fewer mistakes in the toughest spots, uh, not being a flop expert. Uh, that's really not going to uh, separate you from the crowd, especially when everyone can get the flop more or less right. And there's people have been found have found some amazing simplifications that uh, help them win the the flop war. Uh, fortunately, poker also has fourth and fifth street. Um, so I really love that video. I hope everyone checks it out. Um, it's interesting and it leads nicely into your webinar um tell us about the details of it when is it um you know what are they going to see how long is it how much does it cost blah 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 so it's going to be on march 21st at 11 a.m pacific uh that's two eastern um and it'll be 225 dollars it should last uh around two hours uh, maybe maybe a little over and so I, I start with the basics, what I think is prerequisite knowledge for using and interpreting, understanding the solver's output. Uh, so poker theory and game theory basics. Um, I'll probably move through that somewhat quickly. Um, I, I think anyone who's had some poker coaching or has done a decent amount of, of reading about the game, will have some grasp of that, and I'll recommend supplemental resources. But I just want to cover that to make sure everyone is on the same page. Then I'll, I'll cover how a solver works and, and how to use GTO Plus, the different functions of it, building trees and editing trees. 
then really the main portion of it is explaining my method for using GTO Plus and Flopzilla Pro together to study poker and to build strategies. And then I'll, I'll look at some example studies that I've done implementing my methods and talk about uh, my process for implementing strategies that you'd learn doing these studies um, when you're at the table. Excellent. Um, that sounds very necessary. And I want to use that as sort of a segue into getting into some comments from things you've seen in the games that make you think people might want this, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are some things, if you could speak specifically to, say, the game we play in once or twice a week, the OOP game, that you're seeing that might inspire players to revisit their strategy and how they approach it? Right. I mean, I think uh, like the hand we played is is a good example because we both assume one another to be tough players. We understand that there is an incentive to be bluffing with some of these low equity hands. But that's not something I see from many of the players in our game who are mostly peddling value and uh, the merge as well. Some, so often with overly merged range ranges, but lacking in bluffs. But and, and that might work often in very small stakes games against opponents that aren't aware of what's going on. But as you face tougher opponents and uh, um, get into tougher games, your opponents are going to be aware of what you're doing after a, a sample of hands. If you continually show up with, with value and, and thin value, and that's it, there's not very much of, there's no incentive really to, to be giving you action. Um, so people, people adjust to that. And you, even I think in, if you're playing in small stakes games, in relatively small player pools, people eventually become aware of what you're doing. And if you're not giving them an incentive to take the prices you lay, eventually you just get no action. Like one of the adjustments I see from players, both in live games and in our game, is rather than adding bluffs to a large bet range, they continually continue to just push the value but offer better prices. But there's still not as much incentive or not much of an incentive to give you action. You, you price maybe their, their nut draws in and hands that can outdraw you, but you're not giving them any uh, incentive to when you're, when you only have value in your range, you're not giving them an incentive to ever try to bluff you or raise you. Uh, so you're not going to be a, a you're never going to give them any incentive to build the pot with your your nut hands, the top of your range. Um, and, and eventually you just, you get no action. And then, and then often a complaint from those players is bad beats. And the, the <laughs> I mean, the, it's the effect of their strategy. The, the only time they get action is when their opponent outdraws them. Right. There's a lot of essential misunderstanding going on. And a lot of the laments are, are self-created. Uh, related to this this idea that well you need to price down in order to get action means um, among other things well now you don't get in to big pots with huge hands or you know with the option to bluff as well and so 
we see a lot of players with very strong hands um, creating these small pots when they've bought in for like 300 big points. Right. And that th- there's something going on there. Oh, we've got a phone call. We better cut this out. Well, we were interrupted there briefly. Um, but what I was saying is there should be evidence in your games, whether you're in this game or you're a player anywhere. It doesn't matter. When you're not able to get lots of chips in, when you're not able to make big bets, the fault is someone with someone with you. Um, it's with your ranges. It's with the prices you are offering at a low enough frequency or a high enough frequency which which create this action. And of course, there's the silliness of just games so soft you get paid anyway, but there's no future in that. You don't get to move up and you eventually uh, become that guy at the casino who orders his meal and uh, maybe later can't even eat but orders a cup of coffee. I don't know if I'm saying anything that you pick up on. <laughs> But that's 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 you out there, actually, and you don't even know it when you play that weekly. Um, and so this video and this uh, related webinar, I think, are going to do a lot for, for players. So um, we've got the hard parts out of the way. You've uh, told us about the webinar. You're going to contact Porter at porter.pkr at gmail.com. That's P-O-R-T-E-R dot pkr at gmail.com and of course that'll be listed on the the notes the liner notes for the show um so get into that and there'll be reminders about that but now that we've gotten this out of the way uh tell me more about uh your poker life what's going on in the games um and tell me some maybe some fun poker anecdotes that uh you have for us since we last talked uh let's see uh, nothing too exciting from this year. I've got uh, my first trip planned so I can play in some bigger games uh, in LA for for March. Uh, the the local games have been good in uh, Scottsdale. They're they're always good in the uh, when the snowbirds come back uh, from from November to to March. Um, there's some there's some local competition right now because a new because a new uh, casino is opening, so the the main casino is actually feeling some pressure and running a bunch of lame promotions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that sounds grumpy. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is grumpy. I yeah, uh, they're they're giving their 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 promotion is to give away a car. You have to be present on the date that it's given away. Uh, and so they, they give away a bunch of tickets based on high hands and then you have to be there for 12 hours on, on one day. That's their, that's their idea. I don't, I don't know. I I think that every, every poker room should just run one promotion only, which is, uh, like hourly or half hourly high hands and just pump money back in, in small amounts. But, uh, I don't run a poker room, so what do I know? Um, they get bored too. They need, they want fun with their, you know. You're thinking about don't stop thinking so much about yourself. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to win any high hands, but but I hope that other people will. <laughs> I, I nobody calls, so I I just win with all my bluffs, and I guess occasionally, uh, yeah. So yeah, the games games. Nobody here calls goes, you, huh? So maybe you should check out this webinar, huh? Uh, yeah, no, nobody nobody calls because of, of their <laughs> strategy, not because of my strategy. Uh, well, it's all about them, huh? I guess yeah. I I get I get plenty of action. 
Um, yeah, so that's uh, what's happened so far. January, January was a good month. Uh, the games, I feel like I've been playing very well. Um, partly an effect of the work that I've been doing, um, but I'm also trying to put more volume in and less time studying. I, the, a mistake I've made in the past is really uh, leaning too hard. I, I enjoy studying, and so I, if I err in one direction, it's spending too much time studying and not enough playing. Uh, so I have some volume goals for this year to try to improve on that. So that means less like watching poker vloggers listening to podcast no one knows about you porter what who are your favorite poker vloggers and luckily uh watching poker vloggers is not a vice of mine i i don't enjoy video like entertainment in general videos for learning maybe but not not for entertainment i'd rather uh, read in general uh, All right. Well, so what's I have a, what's no... a good book that you've read or a good article that you've read or something in poker that you've read? <laughs> I don't know that I've read any poker books lately. Uh, I've, I've read some of the new Acevedo book. Um, I, I'm still working through the second volume of Tipton. Hey, this is Porter. I'm going to be sneaky and edit this in so the listener doesn't think I'm a total Philistine. Uh, there are books that I've been reading lately, non-poker books. Uh, Shantaram by Gregory David Roberts, uh, plays by Tom Stoppard, like uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, and Arcadia and some others. Uh, Mason and Dixon by Thomas Pinchon is what I'm reading right now. For fiction, also recently read uh, Streetlights and Shadows about adaptive decision-making by Gary Klein. Um, you don't post anymore, so I can't read any uh, articles on Persuadio.nl. What if I were writing all this time, but only reading them for myself? That that would be cruel. Um, my, my favorite were the early posts with all the all the uh, characters and and descriptions of all the uh, local degens and. Uh, like the banker and um... <laughs> yeah, those guys. I see them every now and then when I play. You know, I I play so little now. It's kind of a shame. Um, it's because of various things. It's not even. I don't even wish to play this little. It's not like I've retired or anything. But and especially now, I'm I'm out in a cabin in the middle of nowhere, and I was promised all this action at this one casino, and I remember going to it, and. Um, so I walk in on this busy day. Oh, it's busy Thursday. Lot, tons of players come out, and there's there's one old guy reading a newspaper. <laughs> and that's it. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I could be wrong, or you know, maybe it was just a bad day. So I've now I've come out here again, and I come out expecting all this stuff, and there's like one table of one three going. <laughs> Two tables of two four, and there's like ten people on the list for more one three. Uh, a couple people on for five five, and I'm like, eh, you know, whatever. Um, and there all these people, and they won't open the damn table. And why? Because they've got this like tournament running with thirty four people in it. Ask me how much is up top. <laughs> how much was up top? I think it was three eighty. I'm not sure. <laughs> and then, you know, you think, well, this could be a bad evening, and uh, but it, you know, it goes all right. 
and um, I see, I witness the most insane brawl. Um, boy, this is just, this is just, just crazy stuff. Weird, wacky stuff, you know, whatever, as the one person said. Um, I should, <laughs> so I should, my point is that, you know, I should probably start blogging again, but I don't, I don't get out much and uh, that, that hurts my ability to talk about the banker and all those buddies. Yeah. I think the, the brawl story is, is worth a write up for sure. Yeah, that was good. Any brawls down in that talking stick? I mean, Arizonans seem like tough Wild West types. There was one last year that that was on uh, a bunch of people posted clips of it on YouTube. I, I wasn't there for it. Apparently, some some old guy, like some guy in his his sixties, I think. Maybe I don't think he's early seventies, but he's definitely in his sixties. Who's like a former expert fighter of some kind ended up like running in and breaking it up because <laughs> I don't know. Well, God did. damn it. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately I wasn't there for that because that would have been a good one. Huh? Okay. Um, so you don't enjoy video. There's no poker reading. Forget poker. Uh, what's a good movie that everyone should see? Uh, croupier. I think is, is that's a good from one. like ages ago. Mm-hmm. We know that's good. <laughs> like, what's the last good movie? You can't go and see. Yeah, I'll go out, you know, to the Cineplex and see Croupier at 7 p.m. Come on. Man, you're, you're, you're making my life sound so boring. Or you're exposing my life for being <laughs> yeah, as boring as... <laughs> yeah, I won't, I won't comment on that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even remember the last movie I saw in the theater. It's been a while, sadly. There, there are like several movies that I, I want to go see. I want to go see that uh, Adam Sandler gambling movie. The uh, what is it called? I don't remember. That's close enough for old people. They always <laughs> refer to the movies by the stars, and they call it usually. That usually, I don't. I have no no attraction to seeing movies based on who's in them. It's generally all based on who the the writer or director is, but. Um, yeah, it's been a while since I've, I've, oh, Uncut Gems, that's what it's called. Yeah, yeah, that sounds, that sounds promising. So, uh, you know, take it from Porter, go see that Adam Sandler movie. That's that's his big, (laughs) that's that's one of his favorite things in the world, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's get back, uh, you know, before I do ask for a second guest here, uh, (laughs) let's, let's get back a little bit, um, to our OOP game, because the other thing I want to do is get more people involved in this. Um, you know, the the massive rake on a ten twenty cent game, uh, first of all, is incredibly awesome. So, <laughs> I'm oh, incentivized. Yeah. I know. To do I'm, that. I'm about ready to retire. Are you? Okay. Uh, but seriously, I can't think of a better way uh, of for the you know the people who are in the forums, um, and the you know, and the and the, the audience beyond to help themselves out because they come into this game and you find out really quickly that usually you're just not very good at poker. You like open the wrong hands. You always bet half pot. (laughs) Then you bet half pot again, and then you're confused on the river and you wonder why the game isn't soft like every other 10, 20 cent game. So tell me a little bit more of your impressions of what you're seeing out there and how, um, you know, not to tie this into the sales pitch so much, but how people should maybe reconsider what they're doing. Yeah, I guess I think the game is is really fun. Um, the the rake is 
low rel- relative to any site that you'll play on uh, publicly, any U.S. facing site uh, for what that's worth. But yeah, I think there's a lot of value in, in playing in a small stakes game where you can experiment with new things uh, that you've been working on um, and the consequences for being wrong are not uh, very high um, because you're playing such small stakes. Um, and I don't feel like I see enough of that in our games unless most of the exper- experiments are revolving around like how thinly can I value that. So, yeah, the, and there's there's a mix of, I think, people that are playing purely for entertainment and people that are actively trying to get better, and, and that's fine. Uh, every, everyone is going to play for their own reasons. But things I see in the game are a lot of, like, lazy preflop decisions, uh, whether it's not three-betting often enough because people are not paying enough attention to what uh, their opponents are doing, or just defending. I see a lot of um, what I think are odd blind defense uh, decisions, defending the big blind just absurdly wide, which is going to be really difficult to uh, show a profit on. Uh, playing out of position at, at depth, with, with significant depth as we usually have, than just general uh, construction mistakes, preflop not understanding the incentives when being out of position or in position uh, facing three bets or four bets. And, and that leads to more difficulty post-flop um, based on how ranges are expanded or, or narrowed, uh, depending on the formation. Yeah, and then just, I think there's a general, it seems to have caught on in our games because there are some tough players that overbet. And so now some of the, uh, students and, and other players are trying to implement overbet ranges on on turns and rivers mostly, but not really understanding how those ranges need to be constructed in order to really deserve any action. So often being either overly uh, merged and, and having a lot of top end and thin value um, or just being uh, just nutted um, with hands that that are trying to lay an unfavorable price to like draws and, and the hands that can improve. Um, yeah. And then uh, on rivers, I think I, I see from a few players in particular, but a lot of hands that can definitely value bet, but choose to check behind because they're worried about facing a check raise, um, which a, you can just bet fold some hands B, some hands are strong enough that they can bet call. Um, and I, I guess it happens for two reasons. Like two reasons. One is that, that those players often uh, think that they're not going to be called by worse. Uh, but the reason that they're not going to be called by worse is because their opponent often understands that they're not bluffing. So in, in theory, their, their hand, whatever it might be, should be able to uh, bet and be called by worse. Um, but because of their construction errors, they're, they're forced to, to check those hands behind. Um, and yeah, then, that's, all, that's yeah. all very fair. Yeah. 
Um, and I'm going to be more conciliatory now because I have okay. sort of been, you've probably noticed that I've been knocking heads over the last few weeks <laughs> <laughs> to get some people out of their patterns. Now, when you start seeing as a poker coach uh, more overbets, even if they're more for value, mm-hmm. that's the first step. Okay. Right. Um, it's easier to do that. And that has become, as just as mirroring a lot of um, online play, um, lower stakes players have become very good at extracting certain kinds of value and understanding <clears throat> that when they appear uncapped and uh, their opponent is capped, they're going to be able to get paid off by this, you know, by this bluff catching range, even though their overbetting range is an imaginary range. Mm-hmm. And that they're really just, you're seeing the fear of, um, being bluffed which is interesting because you know to get back to all these youtube comments and the way the poker community reacts most players play in a very um emotional way rather than a rational way which is uh what we try to teach it's what your obviously your webinar is about given that it's called scientific poker study so in other words people are making steps and i've been seeing right. more check i've been seeing uh some check raise bluffs that were possibly in good spots but the hands that were shown down um, mm. didn't make any sense but that is a good thing and that is one of the reasons we play small um we should see a lot more of this i don't um to get <laughs> to get back to knocking heads again i have a hard time understanding at a 10 cent 20 cent game why we're not seeing um more risks right and uh, one of the cool ones to compliment a player i saw uh troy you know um make this like three-way like bet call versus a check raise with 10 high understanding that he had a lot of value on this board and then was able to bluff the river and then you know asked nine showed showed everyone the 10 <laughs> high <laughs> now that was you know nice. and and, you know, when you look at solves, it's not that, you know, well, not all of us have access to three-way uh, solves. I, I can't even get that damn program to work. I'm such a moron. Someone's going to have to show me how to do it. Uh, but you will see that blockers and and the analog hands to the value really need to be there or no one's going to call you. And once you've set up this expectation, oh, you know, I'm tight. I've made the overbets. I've made the plays. Oh, somehow I always had it you know now maybe you can feel comfortable making some more bluffs because people start thinking and suddenly we're actually playing poker right and not just matching up the shapes and hoping you know to protect our hand or you know charge the draws or whatever it is they they teach you at you know in very basic uh, poker manuals uh, and plans to beat one two just won't won't do that well on the whole but they will certainly pay off um, sometimes in this game because people are giving you credit for trying and giving you credit for bluffs, even though you're not. So you don't really even want to be a huge winner in this game. You don't want to be a huge loser either, but you should really be trying um, to take advantage of the opportunity to expand yourself because that's, that's the way forward. Um, I hate to say it. It's, it's not, about sneaking out uh, a small win rate in a small game. I don't know. Have we covered the game? Anything else you'd like to say about it? Um, yeah, I guess I wanted to uh, address like a couple of what I think are, are misconceptions about like whether or not game theory or using solvers are useful for your games, whoever, whatever your games might be. I, I think 
uh, often you'll hear small stakes players uh, or even like one, two players for sure. And then also even like three, five and maybe some five, 10 players that think, well, you know, my games are soft and and therefore uh, solvers aren't useful. Game theory isn't useful for me, but that means like equilibrium strategies aren't useful for you because you don't want to play equilibrium strategies against weak players. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that solvers aren't useful. Um, there's the whole, like a lot of the discussion in my video is about in the jacks or in my webinar, a lot of the discussion is about using node locks and looking at, uh, how you'll adjust versus versus different strategies, similar to what I discussed in the, the Jack six suited video, like the equilibrium strategies come from clairvoyance, like both. Uh, when the solver iterates a bunch of strategies, trying to find uh, the two strategies that maximize EV and, and can't deviate to gain anything, um, they're using both strategies are, are fully aware of, of each other. Um, but as humans, obviously, we play with incomplete information and we're just trying to infer strategies that our opponents are using. And even with that, caveat the solvers are still useful for designing and testing strategies based on what your assumptions might be um so like the proper use of game theory is trying to come up with strategies that maximize ev in practice and that doesn't mean trying to copy some solver output where you're mixing every combination with multiple bet sizes and checking and trying to play this super complicated strategy that you're not going to be able to remember. There are plenty of simplifications that are, are useful that you can implement in games in, in order to maximize your EV based on your assumptions about your opponent. Well put. And I think we can sort of wrap things up there. Could you tell the listeners once again what they need to know about uh, getting involved with your webinar? Yep, you can uh, contact me uh, with questions uh, or to uh, purchase the webinar uh, to pay for it when we're going to do it, which will be on March 21st at uh, 11 a.m. Pacific. My my email address is porter, P-O-R-T-E-R dot P-K-R at gmail.com. Excellent. Um, I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to get involved with our game and, you know, play with Porter, test him out. He's a he's a tough player, and uh, you'll you'll want to enjoy that because it's the you know <laughs> can't I seem like I have to repeat myself a lot. I mean that's just the way it is. But it's the tough decisions that bring joy to the game, not the not the easy ones. And uh, this hand that he showed was a tough decision for me. I think he does reveal what I have. Certainly not an easy shove for me. And uh, but that that's why we play, and we study to to get better at making tough decisions. So. It all makes sense to me. What's wrong with everyone? <laughs> uh, are we still online? Okay. Thank you uh, for speaking to me again, Greg. And uh, we will sign off. Take it away, Dean. Yeah, tough decisions make my brain hurt. But uh, my wife says it will help stave off Alzheimer's and dementia, keeping the synapses uh, exercised. Anyway, thank you for tuning in once again to the Poker Zoo. You can find us, of course, at persuadio.nl, thepokerzoo.com, at ZooPoker on Twitter, 
thepokerzoo at gmail.com, persuadio at gmail.com. So many ways to get in touch. And make sure and get on the list to be notified of the upcoming webinar. Porter gave his email. We'll stick that in the show notes. Maybe even put a contact form in the show notes to be uh, notified nearer the date of the webinar. Thanks for tuning in once again, and we will see you next time.